this will be the third time I'm coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. And Father, we just ask as always for the help of your Holy Spirit, to understand the word of God, that you'd prepare us accordingly, Lord. We want you to speak to us through what you have already spoken and declared by your Spirit's ministry in this precious book, the word of God, that we hold and we study together as your people. So we ask, Lord, give us a heart to, to receive and an ear to hear what your Spirit's saying to this part of your church as we continue now in our worship and we ask together expectantly in Jesus name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, the word verify refers to making sure or demonstrating that something is accurate or genuine or true. And the idea being, I think certainly that wise people don't just assume Wise people actually make sure. That is, they verify and they assess, they assess the validity of something. They want to check. And that protects us, really, when we do that from error. It's the thing that keeps us from making mistakes, heading in wrong directions. And I think nowhere is that in life more important than to verify what is true than in regards to spiritual matters. If there is anywhere where we are going to take the time to verify, to fact check, to make sure what is true, it certainly should be in regards to spiritual matters. Because we do not want to be wrong, nor stay on a wrong path spiritually. It's important to be sure that we know what is true, as well as that we recognize what is not true. And in this section, Paul, in loving wisdom for the Corinthian believers there at the church, as well as no doubt for you and I reading it to this day, he's wanting to address, it seems, this very subject. He's discussing the concepts here of examining and testing and making sure we know what matters most spiritually and even what is accurate and true spiritually in order to verify or check the validity of what is from the Lord and perhaps what's not from the Lord to understand and recognize where a person is at spiritually for our own experience. And remember the backdrop of this section, as we've been talking the last few chapters, Paul's specifically addressing and dealing with issues among the church that are due to the influence of unhealthy spiritual workers. Paul has called them deceitful workers, false apostles, ministers of Satan, who had kind of come in like secret plants among the congregation and were not only mistreating the people of God, but were misleading the people of God in some wrong directions. Uh, and these unhealthy spiritual workers had been bringing unfortunate understandings among the people of God and confusion. And part of this misguidance of these spiritual workers was that they were actually encouraging people and making allowances for and condoning practices of sin. And Paul, as we were leaving off last week, kind of indicated this of how they were sort of just dismissing wrong behavior instead of dealing with wrong behavior. If you notice with me the last two verses that we looked at last time, the end of chapter 12, Paul really was honing in on that. He said, chapter 12, verse 20, I fear, he says, lest when I come... 
I shall not find you as I wish. In other words, living obediently, but instead living disobediently. He says, and then I should be found by you such as you do not wish. In other words, Paul's addressing how he's going to, as he said in our verses this morning, become stern and not spare, but be strong in his rebuke. And why? He says, lest there be contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath selfish ambitions and backbitings and whisperings and conceits and tumults or out of control behavior. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn. And here's why again, for many who have sinned before and have not repented of their uncleanness, their fornication and their lewdness, which they have practiced. So there were those clearly who Paul had previously asked to stop committing sin, to not continue in their practices of sin. Paul had spoken about this numerous times to them, and yet there were many who were still practicing these selfish behaviors, treating one another in wrong and selfish ways, continuing in sexual sin. And this brazen rebellion against God and against his word and against his will was something that was polluting the church. And Paul recognized that this was extremely detrimental. And because of that, he wants to now deal with this. And he's indicating here that if they do not stop, that when he visits, he says in our verses in chapter 12, that he was going to be brought low. That is, I'm going to be bummed out. I'm going to be, you know, just kind of really brought low by this. And he says, it's going to cause me to grieve over the fact that you are still persisting in sins that God has spoken to you about. And he says, and what's worse is you're going to find me in a way that you don't wish to see me behave where I'm going to have to become like a very stern father, Paul's saying. And this is what he talks about as he starts to come into chapter 13 now, that when I come again, he says, I'm not going to spare. He says, I'm not going to hold back. I'm not going to mince words. I'm going to strongly rebuke and I'm going to correct this sin because this is what is necessary, even as at times a father, though very loving at times, has to draw lines and have boundaries. And there comes a time where the loving thing for a father figure to do is to be firm is to hold the line and is to strongly rebuke and strongly correct their child, both for their own welfare, as well as the influence and welfare of the rest of the family. And so Paul, with the same kind of heart, says, unfortunately, when I come again, I'm going to have to deal with this in a way that you would have wished I never had to, and I wished I never had to, but is absolutely necessary at this point. You've sort of forced me into this position. So look at me, chapter 13, verse 1, Paul then says, this will be the third time, notice, the third time, he reminds them, that I'm coming to you. And by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I've told you before, he says, and foretell you as if I were present the second time. Now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, he says, I will not spare. So notice, Paul's indicating that not only he's going to be visiting again, but he clearly tells them, when I come and visit again this third time, I am not going to hold back. I'm going to be very stern in dealing with disobedience and sinful behavior in a way like I wasn't previously in my spiritual correction. And notice Paul reminds them in verse 1 there that he's coming to visit, he says, now for the third time. In other words, this is the third time that he's going to spend time together with this congregation. Remember, Paul had come there with a team of believers as a missionary team. He had planted the church. The book of Acts tells us that he spent 18 months, a year and a half there, teaching them the word of God. So second uh, longest after the church of Ephesus, where Paul spent in any one region as Paul was a traveling church planter and missionary. And the second longest duration of time, Paul spent 18 months grounding them, teaching them the scriptures before he moved on and planted another church. And then Paul had visited a second time. We know where during that second visit, he warned and he cautioned them that were living in disobedience and some who were living outside of God's word and God's will. And because in that second visit, he was cautioning them in regards to the fact that he had already written to them 
1 Corinthians prior to that. And if you were with us or remember what 1 Corinthians is about, it is a very strong correctional letter. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes strong correction over numerous different sinful practices that were being practiced within the church among the Christians there and that nobody was seeming to have any concern about. So Paul sends them 1 Corinthians. They don't respond. Some of them do, but many of them don't. Then he visits the second time. And that point there, he begins to strongly correct. I sent you a letter. I addressed these things. You asked me questions. I gave you instruction how to correct wrong behavior. And, and some had responded rightly, but others were still persisting. And now Paul sends a secondary letter, which we've gone through together, 2 Corinthians, where he again readdressed some more things in regards to what was going on, and yet still some, after multiple, multiple interactions, communications, are still persisting in regards to certain sinful practices and rebellion. And Paul has given them caution, he's given them instruction, he's given them a big amount of time and patience to turn the ship around to repent, to turn from what's wrong, to get back into doing what's right. And this is now the third time he's going to come and visit them again with much proof of their sinful practices. And this is what gives Paul this perspective that he's now on a valid basis, that he has verified the rebellion and now feels it is appropriate to be stern in exercising his spiritual authority because he's had multiple interactions where he has cautioned them and asked for correction. And now he says, I am not going to spare my severity because I have verified what's going on numerous times and I verified that you're not changing. So therefore I feel it is appropriate now to be very stern, to become very severe for your own spiritual welfare. What I want you to take notice is how Paul processed this because he alludes to it in our verses and verify that it was the right thing at this point to get very stern spiritually. I think wanting to assure himself that he wasn't being overly severe and that he shouldn't give a little bit more grace and patience. He wanted to assure his own heart. I think he also certainly wanted to verify for those who were sinning and practicing the same sins, though he had asked them many times giving lots of grace, lots of patience to repent and change. He wanted to assure to them and verify, look, I'm not being hypercritical or over condemning or severe. I've given you many opportunities as well as for the entire church that what he is going to do in his response was completely righteous and in alignment with God's ways. And how did Paul base his reasoning and come to his decision? Well, verse one tells us very clearly it was by utilizing what? the word of God. Because do you see what Paul says in verse one in regards to the severity and not sparing? He quotes from Deuteronomy 19, verse one, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. So Paul's decision to not spare and to become severe in his rebuke and correction was based off of what Deuteronomy 19, the word of God gave as far as spiritual instruction. Deuteronomy 19, the verse he's referencing here says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. See, God put a principle into play in Deuteronomy 19, which was to protect against quick judgment, to make sure that people didn't too quickly become harsh or hypercritical. He said, only by the mouth of two or three witnesses in regards to committing sin or violating the law can punishment and judgment come upon a person. He said it's important to take time to be patient in protocol to carefully ensure that wrongdoing is indeed being done. There needs to be at least two or three witnesses, he says. There needs to be multiple occurrences that testify, yes, this is really going on. And it's continuing to go on. And there's very clear evidence and repeated occurrences of the infraction to verify, if you would. And then once that was verified, according to Deuteronomy 19, that that sin or that violation of moral or civil law had happened by multiple witnesses, then it was appropriate to, to mete out a degree of punishment or judgment. Now, that being said, once it was clear wrongdoing was happening and verified, then it was right 
just as right to strongly deal with it and not dismiss it and brush it aside. And this is the conclusion that Paul has come to at this point. Based off of Deuteronomy 19 and what the scripture gave as a spiritual principle, Paul says, okay, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, once it's established, then judgment or discipline or stern punishment should come. So Paul says, okay, that's a, I got the spiritual principle. I, I visited there once. Then I wrote him a letter. Then I went there a second time. Then I wrote him another letter. Now I'm going there a third time. And Paul says, it's time. Now it's time to sternly rebuke because clearly there's rebellion in their hearts. And he came to this conclusion of how to deal with a sensitive matter and a difficult subject by utilizing the word of God as his measuring bar, as the spiritual lens for how to address the matter, to interpret and decide, and then even how to handle it. So whether it was a direct instruction in the word of God, whether it's a spiritual principle in the word of God, God's word is always the best guide for how we make decisions, how we handle matters, how we determine what to do or what not to do. Paul used the word of God to verify what was true and how to righteously address all matters. And boy, that is a really great lesson by way of application for all of us. Whether it's in our personal lives that we would make our decisions and come to our conclusions based off of what the scripture says directly or principles that we can derive from the scripture, from the word of God, that help us to come to our personal conclusions of what is right and what is wrong, or what is of God, or maybe what's not of God, but of the flesh, or of something that seems just human and, and emotional, rather than what is biblical and, and the authority and truth of what God's word says, that we would use the word of God in our families, and as we set protocol or standard or boundaries or how we handle things, you know, there were numerous occasions when the kids were growing up where, you know, they, they got the age, they started asking questions about this and that. And there were numerous times where they start asking these difficult questions. And what I knew about my children was that I had raised them to understand that this was the final authority. And this is what God says. And we live the way we live as a family not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. And if I was a plumber or an architect or anything else, we would still live the same way. So when situations arose a time, I, well, dad, well, why, well, why? I would just say, well, can you sit down a minute? And sometimes I would just read them a verse. And I'd say, that's why. Let's go back to family life. If you want to argue with God, you can take that up. But it's not that I'm trying to give you a hard time. It's just, this is what the word of God says. And so we are seeking to honor the word of God. It is our decision making. And so whether it's in our personal lives or our family lives or how we operate as a church, this is how we determine what's true spiritually, what is genuinely of God, or maybe what may not be of God because of what the scripture tells us how we handle matters, how we relate and respond, not because of how I feel justified. Well, well, you don't know what they've done to me. Well, you don't know what they've done to me. I just can't forgive. Nobody can forgive. Forgiveness is supernatural. At least when you say I can't forgive, you're actually getting somewhere because you're admitting you can't forgive. But that also isn't an excuse for not obeying the scripture, which says out of obedience in faith and obedience, you let the authority of scripture trump your personal feelings and thoughts and experiences internally because you realize i am commanded to forgive to release from the infraction and to not treat that person with resentment and anger doesn't mean it didn't happen doesn't mean that there's not hurt but the reality is is i need to obey what the word of god says and so in every situation that unfolds our basis of reason should always be what is the truth and authority of scripture say one of my favorite verses that i memorized years ago from galatians paul says nevertheless what does the scripture say i can't tell you how many times that's how i've landed in a difficult matter nevertheless what does the scripture say and if you default there you're always probably going to be on pretty safe ground within the will of god and paul here 
I mean, he's tried to patiently endure, to wait, and he says, I've told you before, this is my third time I'm coming, but he says, this time when I come, he says, I'm not going to spare. And I actually know it's not right for me this time to be gracious again and compassionate. I need to be more stern. Didn't mean Paul was going to be rude, but he was going to be stern and very straightforward and come to a decision that would, in a sense, bring some discipline for their wrong actions and rebellion, for their welfare. He says, verse 3 going on, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, apparently they were questioning that, he says, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. The idea is in his ministry among you. So Paul addresses here in verse 3 how these false teachers, as well as no doubt those who were just living in sin in the church still, that didn't want to repent and didn't want to change, were trying to question if Christ was really speaking through Paul or if Paul was just kind of trying to throw his weight around. He says, it seems that you seek a proof that Christ is actually speaking through me. That is that I'm speaking the heart of the Lord in trying to help you in my instruction. Now, clearly Jesus was speaking through Paul as an instrument to communicate truth to the church to help them. Yet there were those certainly who didn't want to hear the truth. Because in hearing the truth, that meant they had to admit that they were in error. And typically, when a person is living in the darkness, they don't like when someone shines the light. Because then it exposes what they're doing, and it causes them to have to face the reality of what they're doing is dark and wrong. So they try and shut out the light from shining upon their ways and proving what they're doing is wrong. So therefore, when someone is living in error or persisting in sin, their defense and their dispute is to try and discredit anyone who would speak truth into their life, to try and do what they can to diminish from hearing the truth so that basically they don't have to address it in their own lives. And no doubt they were denying the reality of Paul having credibility and speaking on behalf of the Lord. And that's why, as we've talked about, they were trying to challenge Paul's character and discredit him as an apostle of the Lord and a leader and and a pastor teacher speaking into their life because they wanted to justify that they didn't have to listen to what Paul was saying because Paul was sharing truth with them and trying to tell them the will of God in the heart of the Lord. And see, nothing's changed, nothing new under the sun. Whenever someone is doing what's wrong, they don't want to listen to anyone who's going to speak the truth into their life. It's a natural pattern. Quite frankly, there are probably times in some of our lives where we've done that ourselves. And certainly we recognize that there are going to be times when you see someone doing what's wrong, that they are not going to want to listen to those who tell them what's right or speak the truth into their life because they don't want the accountability. They don't want you to expose their error. And it's typical for those doing wrong, therefore, to be challenging others that speak the truth to them to try and just dismiss it as if it's not important or to avoid altogether those who speak the truth of Christ into their lives. And Paul says, it appears that you kind of seem to want or need there in Corinth some proof to verify that Jesus is actually the one speaking to you and not me. And I think Paul is kind of alluding to here in verse three, he says, who you realize this proof of Christ, that he is not weak toward you, but actually he says he is mighty in you or among you. The idea is in his ministry and in his voice speaking to you. You almost sense that Paul is trying to say to them, look, let's take me out of the picture. He says, the reality is, I think you know very full well, if you're honest, that you sense and know that Christ's ministry among you is not weak. It's actually pretty powerful and mighty in your midst And you're trying to use me as interference, but you know Jesus is speaking to you very strongly. And he's communicating to you about those things. They were hearing Jesus speak to them loud and clear, you betcha. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And he's the chief shepherd and the overseer of all of our souls. And so when a sheep begins to wander, you can even dismiss the human shepherd. The good shepherd, Jesus himself, is going to do everything he can to try and bring an erring sheep back on path. And so no doubt they were hearing the Lord's voice loud and clear because when it comes to important matters, look, whether it is through a person, a pastor, or any Christian, Jesus always finds a way to get his message across. 
He always finds a way to communicate and to speak in mighty ways to his people. They already had proof that Christ was speaking. Paul's alluding to the fact that they were just trying to deny the evidence. They were hearing the voice of the Lord, and Paul, I think, kind of found it sad that they wanted him to prove that he was speaking on behalf of the Lord because in Paul's mind, I think he knew, look, a person doesn't need to claim this is from the Lord or the Lord's revealed this to me. When someone speaks on the Lord's behalf and they share what they've received from the Lord, you can say it as simple and straightforward as possible and the punch of the potency of the Lord communicating to a person's heart is so real it's undeniable. You know, there have been times in my life when people have spoken into my life, spoken prophetically into my life, and I know that I know that that was a word from the Lord. And I didn't need them to say, nor honestly, many of the times it was genuine, did they even need to say, you know, Tony, the Lord's revealed this to me. And the Lord has told me to say to you, they just spoke to me in a very straightforward way. And the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ was speaking in them and through them. And the proof was in the pudding. It was just evident. It was a proof that Christ was speaking. And whenever Jesus speaks to a person or to his church, I think if we were all to be honest, we would say it's pretty undeniable. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty clear when the Lord pierces our hearts and what we're hearing resonates our soul and we go man the lord is talking to me right now psalm 29 tells us the voice of the lord is powerful and when the lord speaks that proof is very evident because of the impact that it has upon those who are listening that it just pierces our heart and we know that the lord is speaking directly to us and that we're hearing his voice now Paul here, once he speaks about the Lord, it seems that Paul, that was his favorite subject, he always had to say a little bit more because look what he goes on to talk about in verse 4. He says, since we brought up Jesus, let's talk about him a little bit. He says, verse 4, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. So notice, one of the greatest things that verified that Jesus was indeed God, that he was the one the Savior sent to mankind, was what he did and what he accomplished. And this is what Paul comes back to. He mentions here Jesus' humble life on earth as he lived in what looked like a weakened condition, which ended in crucifixion, and then how on the other side of that, how Jesus raised back to life by the power of God and lived in his resurrected life. And that pattern of first Jesus being a suffering servant and then becoming a powerful, risen, glorified king was exactly what scripture predicted would be true of the Savior, of the Messiah. When you read the Old Testament, many to this day who don't want to see Jesus in the Old Testament, they, they almost see two Messiahs there because they can't reconcile. How is there a suffering servant this sacrificial person, Isaiah 53. But yet there are other Old Testament passages that speak of the Messiah, the Savior, as this powerful, reigning, glorified king. And what we understand through the lens of the Spirit on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection is that's very clearly Jesus coming the first time as a humble, suffering servant to die on the cross for our sins and then raising in power and victory afterwards through his resurrection and coming back a second time to then rule and reign and to deal with sin, even as Paul was going to have to deal with sin, as a glorified king and a judge over those who did wrong. Even Jesus predicted the same about himself repeatedly. These two things, Luke, 20, or Luke 9 verse 22, Jesus said, the son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and then be raised the third day. Jesus said that multiple times, this idea that first there'll be a appearing weakness, I'll suffer, I'll be beaten, I'll be betrayed, I'll be crucified, but then I'm gonna conquer death three days later. In John chapter 10, Jesus alluded to that same thing when he talked about being the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And he said, no one takes my life from me, I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have authority to lay it down when I want to, 
and then also to take it up again. And Jesus, of course, did that very thing. He said, I will lay it down in weakness, and then I will come back to life in great power, and that he had the authority to do that. And Jesus not only faithfully fulfilled that, but over 300 plus prophecies that predicted things about his life. And that's why though Jesus possessed all authority from heaven, and you always have to remember this, the life of Jesus did not begin as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus is the eternal God, the eternal son who forever was on the throne in heaven forever and ever before the foundations of the earth were even created. Jesus was alive and at the father's right hand. And then he took upon himself a second nature. He took a human nature and added a human nature to his divine nature. And this is what Paul means in verse four when he says he came and he was crucified in weakness. Jesus set aside all of his heavenly privileges in the eternal throne, took a second nature, a human nature, was born as a baby, then lived as a man among us to reveal God to humanity and to rescue mankind. And by living in a weak human body, he experienced everything that we do as people, pressures and pain and cold and exhaustion and he experienced all the human weaknesses that we do and endured all those things yet he overcame every temptation one difference between jesus as man and all the rest of us as mankind he never failed he lived perfectly the righteous life that you and i can never live and he did it on our behalf And he lived that perfect righteous life to satisfy the requirement of perfection to enter into heaven, allowing mankind even to abuse him, to crucify him, to put him to death on the cross, to die for the punishment of the sin of the entire world in our place to spare us. This is what Philippians 2 speaks about when it says this, Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. The most disgraceful, excruciating way to experience capital punishment. So he allowed himself to be crucified in his human weakness, but even though he was crucified in weakness, Paul goes on to say, verse four, yet now, notice he lives by the power of God. Jesus, as predicted, did exactly what he promised. Three days later, by the power of God, he raised back out from among the realm of the dead, having a glorified, resurrected body. He overcame the death process. He defeated the grave for all of humanity. And now by the power of God, he arose and has an everlasting life, which he now may impart from that to you and I, everlasting life, victory beyond the grave, the ability to overcome the death process because he now lives as a victorious, glorified king. And Jesus displayed that mighty power to conquer sin and Satan and death on our behalf. So he went from being crucified in weakness to now his earthly life beginning in weakness and humility, but culminating in what? Great, incredible power. And that's what the second half of Philippians 2 says. In light of what Jesus did, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now Jesus, living by the power of God after his resurrection, is now able to offer to you and I access into heaven, to have relationship with God because he conquered everything for us. Hebrews 7 says he's able to save all those who come to God through him. So Jesus, this beautiful pattern, verifies in his life displaying humility, sacrificialness, suffering, may appear weak, but it was the pathway to God's power. What was the pattern in Jesus' life? Humility, sacrifice, suffering. But what did it culminate in? Great power. Experiencing the power of God, raising and now living by the power of God. And that's why Paul says the second half of verse four, after speaking of Jesus, 
for we also are weak in him. The idea is in relationship with him. But we shall live with him, the idea is relationally, by the power of God towards you. So Paul indicates, though he was being misunderstood, oh, this guy, Paul, I mean, he's not flashy. He is so common. I mean, he's so common. He's so vanilla. I mean, he's not the pizzazz like the other pizzazz guys in Corinth. He's so vanilla. He's so weak. His speech is contemptible. And, and remember, this is what they were criticizing Paul for because he wasn't like one of these eminent apostles. He wasn't a, a, a superstar apostle. And this bothered them tremendously. And Paul says, look, I don't care if I misunderstood. He said that my humble servitude is something that people are misunderstanding. He said, I'm just trying to live in relationship with Jesus. And he said, from what I remember of our Lord Jesus, he lived in weakness, sacrificially and humbly. And he was a servant and he sacrificed. But that was the pattern to then culminate the power of God working through his life as he ministered and served to us. And Paul says, we're okay if we're perceived as nobody special. We're fine with that. We're okay if people misunderstand us and think that we're humble and weak. He says, isn't that how Jesus was perceived? Didn't people misunderstand our Lord? He says, yet now, as we seek to live with Jesus, we shall live by the power of God among you. See, Paul knew something which was very important. What Paul understood was the power of Jesus would be experienced as he had relationship with the Lord, as he lived with him and in him, and that it was Paul's humility that made him the greatest receptacle for the power of the Lord to work through his life. Paul realized it is in my weakness that I experience the Lord's power. Isn't that what he just talked about in our last chapter? If I can recall to your memory, Paul said in chapter 12, verse eight to 10 concerning this thing. Remember that thorn in the flesh, the painful experience that what weakened Paul? tremendously that the Lord left in his life. He says, I pleaded with the Lord that it might depart from me. And Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And here's the Lord's words for Paul, my strength, not yours, supernatural strength from heaven, from Jesus. My strength is made perfect or most complete in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul said, I rather boast in my infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, it's in my weakness that I become the greatest receptacle for the power of Christ to come upon me. And Paul goes on to say there, therefore I'll take pleasure. I'll be content with infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses if it's for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, he says, that's actually when I'm the strongest because then Paul wasn't strong in his personality he was strong in the power of the Lord working through his life. And it was the power of God that people needed, not Paul's personality. Paul sadly saw this as kind of an unfortunate thing. Here they are criticizing, misjudging him. He's been addressing it for almost three chapters now. And I think at this point, as he's kind of ratcheting up, becoming a little bit more stern with them at this point, knowing what they were doing, hyper-criticizing him, Paul says, let me help redirect your focus a little bit. He says, how about you refocus that spiritual examination and do it God's way? Because look what he says, verse five. Let me recommend this. Examine yourselves <laughs> as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you're disqualified. But I trust, he says, that you will know that we are not disqualified. So Paul says, verse six, I think the evidence speaks for itself. And I'm content with that. Paul would say, I think evidence speaks for itself that we are not disqualified spiritually, that the power of God has been working among us and through us in your midst. However, Paul says, since some of you have become very distracted, he's saying to the church with examining me so much, he says, let me perhaps reroute you in the way God would want you to do that. Verse five, how about you? He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith and test yourselves. See, those who were unhealthy spiritually, what was a clear symptom of that? They were hypercritical of everybody else around them. Paul says, ding, ding, ding. That's how you can know if you're starting to get unhealthy spiritually, because you'll be very perceptive of everyone else's sins. 
You'll be really good at identifying what's wrong in everybody else in your life. But you'll tend to struggle with recognizing something wrong in your life. Didn't somebody very wise say something like that? I think it was, wasn't it Jesus said something about that? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you miss the plank, the two by four sticking out of your own? You know, that's the idea there. And so Paul says, look, this is very unhealthy. He says, let me in correction say to you, true spiritual evaluation. How does God intend for it to be done? Personally, that's where spiritual evaluation is really to have its primary focus. Paul says there in our verse, verse five, examine yourselves. God's word instructs self-examination that we would seek to understand and assess where our lives are at spiritually that we would be most concerned about our own condition of our own soul and are we in right relationship with God, that that would be our chief concern and our primary motivation because really the Bible also teaches that's what we're accountable for. I'm accountable for where I'm at spiritually, how I'm doing, how I'm living. I'm not accountable for even what my wife does or what, well, I guess I am to some degree as a spiritual leader. I want to dismiss that. Personally, I think that when I get to heaven, God's going to say, how are you doing? And then where's your wife? My personal conviction. But I can't control what other people do. And I'm not going to stand accountable. The Bible says to his own master, one stands and falls. So my primary accountability is how I'm doing spiritually, where I'm at in my own condition and relationship with the Lord. So Paul says here, test yourselves, use the word of God. And see if your life comes into alignment. See if what the word of God says is what is accurate about yourself or not. Not what people say about you. Not even what you say about yourself. Not even what you think about yourself. Or how I feel about myself. That's not the measuring standard. What is the measuring standard to examine your life? The word of God. It's the mirror of God's word. So Paul says, examine yourself. He says here, whether, notice, whether you are in the faith. The idea is the authentic Christian faith, according to the scripture. That is a biblical relationship with God through trusting and following his son, Jesus Christ. Not, please hear me, especially if you're sitting in a church this morning, not a religious life according to church tradition and attendance where you keep some religious rules and rituals. The Bible says, God's word says, examine yourself, your soul. Test to see whether you have truly had a genuine personal experience with God through exercising your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you for the salvation of your soul. Have you received Jesus Christ as Savior because you know that you're a guilty sinner before a holy God? Have you come to terms with the reality of your own guilt and sin before God, whereby you are desperately concerned about the condition of your own soul and know that you can't work your way or earn your way into heaven and that by sitting in a church, you don't gradually become a Christian, even more than sitting in a garage you gradually become a car it doesn't happen it doesn't happen there are no grandchildren in the in the kingdom of god only children which means all oh, my parents are christians i was raised christian i don't care that's not that, that's ultimately not scriptural standard for entering into heaven i used to say all the time with my children look my job is not just to expose you to christ my job is to make sure you have an experience with christ as Christian parents, we don't want to just expose our kids to Christ. That's a good start. Expose them to Christ. Expose them to Christ. Bring them to church. Live out your Christian life. But the goal is, are they experiencing Christ themselves? Not just that they're being exposed to Christ and Christianity. And this is so important because no doubt God warns us because he knows the potential of spiritual deception. Have we humbly come to that place where we have come to Jesus to receive his forgiveness of our sins? That we've come to recognize he is the only way to be spared from hell and to have eternal life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That only through knowing Jesus personally. That's biblical salvation. This morning, are you just part of a congregation? Or have you been converted spiritually? Two vastly different things. 
two vastly different things. And so God in his love says, look, verify this. And how can you know? Well, the Bible says it's not complicated. Paul says, if you're a Christian, you can test yourselves. Don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you? So the Bible says it's really not that complicated to run that spiritual test on salvation. Here's one of the clearest ways you will know is that Jesus Christ will be a part of your life in a way like his presence never was before. When I got saved, I knew that 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 I knew something happened because someone entered into my life. I didn't just pray a prayer. I received a savior for my soul that said, I forgive you. You're clean now. You're my child. I am with you. I'm in your life now. My spirit has entered inside of you and I've given you the gift of eternal life. And all of a sudden you begin to recognize somebody is a part of your life that was never a part of your life before because you've had an encounter with Jesus. And Paul says here, if you want to examine and test whether you're in the faith, he says, you'll find his spirit will be bearing witness with your spirit inside. And you'll recognize then when you start to do what's wrong, all of a sudden in ways when you used to do what's wrong before, now all of a sudden there's somebody inside of you saying, why are you doing that? You know, you shouldn't talk like that. You know, you shouldn't behave like, and all of a sudden now there's conviction because the Lord Jesus is within you by his spirit and speaking to you. And even then when we fail, right after we fail, he's the one saying to us, I still love you. I just want you to admit that was wrong. I'm willing to forgive you. Come on, let's, but let's turn away from that. Let's do different next time. And there's this, this clear understanding where there's this sense of the verification that the Lord is in your life in a way like you realize he never was before. And Paul says, look, unless your self-examination and test reveals to you, he says, verse five, that you're disqualified. That is disqualified from heaven spiritually because you have not genuinely experienced salvation from Jesus. Maybe you were around Christians. Maybe you were among the church. Maybe you had been religious for a while, but you start to sense and perhaps self-examination leads some to realize they're not saved. They're not converted. You know, I was just telling my kids recently. I remember when I first got saved, it was probably like about two years or so after I was saved, and I was hanging out with a, a couple of, of believers, uh, and we were just sharing our testimonies. And there was another young man who was uh, we were about college age at that time and was just kind of had been spending a lot of time with us and hanging out with us and even coming to these you know, Christian meetings that we were happening. And, and as we were sharing our testimonies, all of a sudden I look over and just tears are streaming down this guy's face. And I mean, just, I just never forget the tears are running down his face. And we were like, oh my goodness, what's the matter, man? Is everything all right? And he said, I'm not saved. And he said, what I hear you guys talking about, I've been coming to the meetings and, and even reading my Bible and stuff, but I'm not saved. What you guys are talking about, that's never happened in my life, he said. And as he just heard the testimony of other people talking about their salvation experience and Jesus coming into their life, he had this, thank goodness, spiritual epiphany where he realized, oh my goodness, I'm not saved. I've never gotten saved. I'm not really born again. And look, this morning, if you run the test and you realize that reality, thank goodness that God's validating to your soul that reality. Because God's also saying to your soul, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Realize, you know what, man, I'm not saved. I, I need to get saved. And so important, again, whether you've been raised in a Christian home or sitting in a church, that you realize that's what Jesus wants, to be your savior, to forgive your sin, to be a part of your life. Is Jesus in your life? It's having him in his presence that's going to determine our eternal destiny. And even for those of us who are Christians, I think it is fair for us to say it is wise at times to even still assess and examine our own lives. We may know we're in the faith, but sometimes it's good to self-examine. Psalm 139, search me, O God, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Sometimes the Lord wants us as Christians even to examine our own lives to realize, am I living in consistency with the faith? Or have I kind of erred a little bit? Or am I deterring spiritually? Or am I you know, permitting sin in a way that's inconsistent with the Christian faith that we would turn back to the Lord if self-examination shows us that? Paul seems to have that on his heart because verse 7, he goes on to say, I pray to God that you would do no evil. I don't want you to continue in your evil, Paul says. Not that we should appear approved. Paul says, it's not that I want you to think that we're approved or special, but that you should simply do what's honorable, even though, he says, we may seem in your eyes disqualified. So notice, Paul's heart and prayer was that they would simply make things right with God. Paul says, I don't care if you think I'm qualified. At the end of the day, it really isn't that concerning to me. Paul says, my concern is the condition of your soul. And I don't want to see you continue to live in evil and do what's wrong. He says, I want to see you do what's honorable. Notice Paul didn't want them to do what was right, whether it was repenting of sin or taking any step of Christian obedience for his sake. He says, I just want you to do it because it's honorable. Just to honor the Lord. I just want to see you do what's right in relationship with the Lord, to be a good testimony, to be in right relationship with him. In verse 8, I think Paul shows us exactly what that looks like, right relationship with him who is the truth. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. So Paul admits, look, at the end of the day, whether I'm liked there in Corinth or whether I'm disliked, I want to honor the Lord myself and my conscience will only let me do one thing. And he says, that's to honor the truth. He says there in verse eight, I can't live against the truth and do things against the truth. I can only do what aligns with the truth and uphold the truth. Why? Because who was living inside of Paul? Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. So the work of the spirit in the life of a Christian is to keep verifying to us what is true and also what is not. So pay attention to what the spirit of truth is saying to you and don't ignore his voice. As the spirit of truth speaks to you and you listen to his voice, you will find you can do nothing against the truth. Why? Because you won't be at peace with it. It will bother you. (laughs) And in the same way, you'll find that you will have peace and faith to do what aligns with the truth, even if it's costly. Why? Because you want to honor the Lord and you'll have the boldness to do what is true. Hey, here's a helpful way to navigate thoughts and decisions. Let God tell you what's true. Not the world, not your own feelings, not other people. Let God tell you what is true by his spirit and then believe what's true and walk in that truth. 